This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. Welcome one and all DWP listeners to a very special series of podcasts from the Doctor Who podcast. Over the next few days we're going to be releasing commentary tracks for all three episodes of the Seventh Doctor story, Dragonfire. Now, um, two of us are going to be on each episode and it's my great pleasure to have Michelle here with me today to uh, commentate on this story. Welcome Trav. And welcome Michelle indeed, <laughs> yes. Uh, we've, we've drawn the, uh, I don't know, we call it the short straw, the long straw, the medium straw. And you and I get to talk about the first episode of Dragonfire. Yeah, this is great. Hey, tell me, why are we talking about Dragonfire? Well, I'm glad you asked, Michelle, because it's the 150th story. Now, well, as you might have guessed, we're around about the time when we're about to release our 150th episode or podcast from the Doctor Who podcast. So we thought it'd be nice to release a commentary for the 150th story. Very similar to what we did back, um, uh, we did our 50th show. We did a commentary on episode 10, I think it was, of the War Games, which was the 50th story. So ah. we're all the way up here with the 150th story. Okay, it's all making sense now. Well, hey, I appreciate that you picked Dragonfire because uh, up until you assigned this, this isn't one I had ever seen. So I, I have only seen this very, very recently. Oh, good. Then we've um, filled another hole in your um, Doctor Who universe then. Yes. Excellent, excellent. Well, let's uh, get into this, I think. Um, what we're going to be doing for the benefit of those out there who are going to be following along with us with their DVD copies or their iTunes copies or even their VHS copies, we're going to be doing a countdown from three. And when you hear me say now, you just press play on your device of choice and you can join along with Michelle and I with the visuals in your own home listening to our commentary track. So are we ready to begin? Absolutely. Excellent. All right. A countdown for you all of three Two, one, now. And here we are into the first episode of the three-part story called Dragonfire. Now, this particular story, um, being a Sylvester McCoy story, was the last story of his first season as the Doctor. Yes, indeed. And so we have uh, not quite the same effect we had with introducing Colin Baker at the end of the season, but we do have uh, the introduction of a new companion at the end of this season. Indeed, indeed. It's it's always interesting, too, because um, it's very different to the way I watched Doctor Who when I was a kid, when I watched these when they were first broadcast, as compared to, say, my children are watching them now, because, um, as we're going to see in this episode, sees the introduction of Ace as the new companion, and the departure of Mel at the end of this story. Now, when, when my kids watched this, they went, oh, is this the first story with Ace in it? Because they're seeing all these out of order, so they have seen other stuff like you know, Curse of Fenric and Happiness Patrol and all those sort of things which have Ace in them already. So uh, it, it's a real thrill for them to see, I suppose, where it all began for young Ace. And that would be true for me too, since I'm seeing this finally for the first time. That was very much of interest when I watched this. Oh, well, there you go. Well, we got um, uh, Tony Asaba on screen there, um, playing a very uh, Sergeant Major type character called uh, Krauser. 
and uh, he's uh, giving a bit of a dressing down to um, some of the new, in inverted commas, recruits that Kane has bought for the uh, princely sum of, uh, what, 17 gold pieces or something. Sure, and, and uh, seeing our first glimpse of some of the scenes here in Ice World, I have to say up front, I, I quite like the set design for this. This room does look really, really nice, actually. It looks like they've spent a lot of money in it. It's multi-leveled, which, which is often quite rare for Doctor Who. Often you'll... Oh, sorry, rarely you will get a story where you'll have multi-levels on the same set. One thing that always amazes me, too, that uh, round device in the middle, that, that control panel, mm. almost looks TARDIS-like to me. And I reckon if they had something like this in the modern series, you, you would have fans talking about it as much as they do when we... Uh, saw that uh, TARDIS-like control room in the lodger. <laughs> right. When is it going to return? And who's going, <laughs> to, be, who's going to be operating well, it? Well, it's been a few years. It's been 25 years, so I, th- I don't think they've had much of a chance to bring it back yet. But who knows? Ice World may return. Oh, there's uh, Kane, played beautifully malevolently by uh, Edward Peel. I agree. I think his performance, as with most of the performances in this, I really like. Ooh, what a nasty way to die. Mmm, yes. Um, a bit of a cold snap, I suppose. Very, very uh, vampire-like, I suppose, too. And uh, we'll see in a very short time how he uh, basically goes into his coffin when his uh, body temperature rises too high. Yeah, I think there was mention that in the script he was referred to as an ice Dracula. Mmm. Well, he's a sort of monster lurking in the heart of Iceworld, basically, up, up, up to his own nefarious deeds, as we'll find out later. So the Doctor and Mel, you know, Mel is someone that I also have not seen very many episodes from, so I'm still uh, getting to know her. This is probably my second Mel story. What would be your first? Delta and the Bannerman. Oh, my goodness. What, what a dazzling array of uh, Bonnie Langford stories to choose from to be in- introduced to <laughs> Actually, uh, I find Dragonfire shares a lot with Delta and the Bannerman. Um, also, apart from its director, uh, Chris Clough directed this. He also directed uh, Delta and the Bannerman. I, I find them very um, pantomime-like, I suppose. There's, there's a lot to this with its very stagey feel, and the way the dialogues are delivered, especially these scenes in the cafe, it really feels like something that could have been a Christmas panto with someone shouting from the wings, oh, no, it isn't, oh, yes, it is, type of feel. They, they seem to be enunciating their words very, very boldly, like they're on stage. Yes, indeed, and I understand this scene here in the uh, fruit bar was supposed to be reminiscent of the cantina scene from Star Wars. Yes, with probably a slightly reduced budget, I'd say. <laughs> it it se- seems like they have gone for the same effect, have they? Sort of throwing in all these weird-looking aliens just, who just happen to be hanging around a bar-type situation, very similar to Star Wars. But, uh, yeah, done nowhere near as well, I'm afraid. Well, rather brightly lit. Yeah, yeah. That's that's something that's, uh, I suppose, a little bit of a hallmark of these later years of Doctor Who. They, they, they didn't do mood very well that, um, you know, they had lots of lights at their disposal and, by goodness, they were going to use them. And and I think it's something, too, that really um, doesn't help the very stagey, very set-bound feel of this story. There's absolutely no location shooting whatsoever for Dragonfire in, in all of its three parts. Um, so we, we have a very set-bound feel, and that even comes down to the way the characters move from one area to another. We, we, we've just seen the TARDIS land in what's supposed to be uh, the freezer section of their local supermarket, yet they walk through one door and they're in this uh, 
cafe situation. So it seems like it's lots of sets linked and they haven't really gone to the trouble of trying to give a sense of depth or space to this particular area. Speaking of being kind of theatrical, there's uh, Patricia Flynn uh, playing Bellage, and I, I thought it was interesting the way she kind of speaks into space here, looking over the shoulder of Glitz. Mm. It's, it's interesting. Later, I'm not sure whether it's this episode or whether it's the next one where she talks about having basically been uh, at the behest of Cain since she was 16 years old. And it, it seems like she's a girl that doesn't really have a lot of well-defined skills in terms of being, you know, interacting with people. She's, she's lived with Cain pretty much all her adult life and, you know, sort of been beholden to him. That would, so, that would know, tend to stunt your personality, I think. Yeah, and, and, and I think that comes across, whether it's intentionally, but I, I, I do think that comes across in the way she enunciates and the way she, like you said, the way she stares off into space and doesn't really make any meaningful eye contact with people. Well, I think she's an interesting foil there, for Ace because she is what Ace could become. Ace is now at that same age where this baddie seems to tempt these young women into his service. And yeah, well, true. I mean, I, I think they do try to draw that same sort of parallel later in this episode where um, Cain basically tries to seduce Ace into joining him as one of his uh, freeze-dried mercenaries, but uh, luckily Mel was on hand to uh, snap Ace out of it. I really do love Edward Peel's performance. I, I like the fact that it's so quiet and so intense, but intense mm. in, in, in a downplayed kind of way. I think that is one of the creepiest ways to do a villain, whereas mm. so many actors choose to kind of go over the top, particularly in Doctor Who, but he makes some great choices. Oh, here's he Ace. Really, I was, I'm just going to say uh, Peel's really the best thing in this entire story, really. Um, He's, he's absolutely fantastic. But yes, as, as you rightly say, there is a young ace, played uh, wonderfully by Sophie Aldred, who of course went on to uh, join the Doctor till, till the end of his run, um, was his last companion basically. So, uh, But this is our introduction to her. What, what I find interesting too is um, Ace is always seen as a very headstrong, forthright, independent woman, but she seems to be characterised very close to the way Mel is in this story. She does a lot of cowering. She does a little bit of screaming. She does a lot of running away. It, it's not really till later and or even the next season where we start to see um, the character of Ace become the one that we recognise, I think. Hmm, I wasn't left with such an impression of cowering and screaming, so... Uh, I suppose, well, she's screaming I, I here, but in a different way. <laughs> I mean, she does spend a lot of time sulking. I mean, she does yeah. show a bit of, I, I suppose, brashness and, you know, sort of self-assuredness there by stealing the map off Glitz. But um, because her and Mel spend a lot of these three episodes together, they're um, pretty much, a you know, sort of a two-handed thing going throughout this entire story. So I think a lot of what Mel does rubs off on Ace because I don't think the director, um, Chris Clough, really knew what to do with her. Mm. It's It's... Interesting too. I mean, I, I I was looking back at the stories that um, Chris Clough directed for Doctor Who, and this is his first. But actually, no, it's not. He uh, did uh, Vervoids the year before Terror of the Vervoids, and it it always surprises me because I'm I'm not a great fan of Dragonfire. Unfortunately, I, I find it incredibly stagey. I find the performances quite um, over the top and pantomiming. It's it just astounds me that Chris has done really fantastic stuff like. Um, Terror of the Vervoids, or even Silver Nemesis with its performances, 
and yet we have something like Dragonfire that it just stands out so much. I like Dragonfire. I, there are it has its places where it falls down badly, but uh, all in all, I enjoy this story. I enjoy Sylvester's performance, for instance, in this scene. I. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm not sure whether Chris got the best out of his performance. Um, really. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure why Glitz is in this story, apart from, you know, the want of having him to return because he was so popular in the um, trial season. Uh, I'll throw another race into the hole, so to speak. Um, Ian Briggs wrote this story. Now, the only other contribution he's made to Doctor Who is Curse of Fenric, which mm. was in the uh, last season of Sylvester McCoy. And if you didn't know it, the, you would never guess that the same writer wrote both those stories because they are just so diametrically different to each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I believe this was his first experience with Doctor Who. It was, it was, yes. He, he only wrote two stories for Doctor Who. I, I think he's written some uh, short trip stuff and he also novelised both of these stories for the uh, Target book range at the mm -hmm. time as well. And uh, uh, Curse of Fenric is famous because uh, it, it expands upon what's in the actual... Uh, TV show as well with some extra scenes which explain the whole mystery behind mm. Ace. Yep, yep, and yep. Um, really, I mean, a lot of people don't like it, but this really is the beginning, I suppose, of what you call the uh, Cartmel master plan with the character of Ace because she gets whipped up by a time storm that she apparently created in her science room and ends up on uh, Ice World. So um, this, this, for all, all intents and purposes, is Andrew Cartmel's, I suppose, first stab at providing that arc yeah. For the Seventh Doctor and Ace. So yeah, there she's uh, trying to show a little bit of um, independence. I mean, she's, I suppose, naively thinking that Kane's just going to let her go. Yeah. That, you know, you know, you know she's going to be able to take um, Glitz's spaceship and wander off on her own. This is really nice. So. Both this scene and the last one where they're together just sparring with each other across the, the stage. And, uh, here, here they come, bringing up the intensity. I find the relationship very, very similar to the relationship in uh, Revelation of the Daleks with the mortician and that girl who adored him from afar, basically, but the mortician didn't really have much time for her. It's, it's, it seems to be a very, very similar type of relationship here where I, I think she's almost got a bit of a crush on him, really. I, I think she would like Kane to show some affection for her. Well, apparently he, he did at one point. He says something about taking advantage of the, the feelings I once had for you. And, and he states that. So there mm, was something for, in the past. Oh, well, there you go. Well, then, yeah, well, I suppose something did happen then. Yeah. <laughs> he, could, he, so, could, he could never have actually touched her. No, no. No, I suppose it would have made any relationship quite difficult, I suppose. <laughs> 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 had to wear gloves all the time or something. But... Uh, Ace. Yeah, now that 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 little girl there, she uh -huh. she pops up throughout all three episodes of this story, and to this day, I'm really wondering what she's there for. You you always think that she's a bigger part of this story than she really is, but I'm not really sure what purpose she serves. Yeah, I haven't decided whether I find her incredibly annoying or a little bit cute. I think I'm leaning towards the former. <laughs> I think I'd take a little from column A and a little from column B, really, as far <laughs> as far as that's concerned. But, but yeah, I, see, there's 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 more of that pantomime feel with the whole milkshake yeah, on the head yeah, type yeah. of thing. And, and you know, that just 
one of my complaints about this actually and the girl is a good example of that is that if it's supposed to be so doggone cold why is everybody running around in fairly loose fitting you know they're not warm costumes they don't look like they're no. somewhere cold no no that's true now, isn't that a teenager's bedroom mm. isn't that the typical teenager's bedroom I've, I've got one of my own right now and uh Yep, that's exactly like it. You could take a photograph and put them side by side, and they'd match, I tell you. Now, you were talking earlier about Ace um, kind of mimicking or, or being a little bit like Mel in this. One of the things I like about this is the way Mel kind of has a almost a maternal quality towards Ace. Mm. Uh, she recognizes mm. that Ace is alone, and you know, Ace has this uh, speech coming up about not having parents, and, and it uh, you know, I kind of like Mel. I know a lot of people don't, and I haven't had a lot of experience with her yet, but um, she seems to genuinely care about people, which is nice. Yeah, I'm not a massive fan of the the character of Mel myself. I always find her, like, a bit shrill. Yeah, suppose, you know, I understand so. that, and I don't care for the yeah. screaming. But, yeah, I mean, because she, I mean, now with the benefit of DVD, we now know that she left the role because she was dissatisfied with where her character was going. So maybe... This might have been, I suppose, a last chance for the writers to give us something interesting to do. Now, there we go. There's a G-rated costume change. Yeah, there for you. yeah and very well done. <laughs> very well done while still performing the Doctor lines. Who's version of I quickly have to change. And <laughs> but, yeah, no, Mel, I, I think in this story, gets something to do. You know, she gets to be that mentor slash maternal mm. type of thing to Ace because I mean it's it's almost like she's guiding her towards the doctor guiding her towards the TARDIS and at the end of the story you know she uh, joins the uh, doctor on his travels the other thing I do like about Mel um, is she has a fairly positive attitude sometimes too positive perhaps but I, I find <laughs> it I find that easier to follow than the whininess of Perry or the uh, griping of Tegan, for example. Uh, at yeah. least at least Mel looks like she's enjoying what she's doing. Yeah, I suppose, too. I mean, maybe it's just my knowledge of what, I suppose, Bonnie Langford is like in real life and what she did before she joined Doctor Who, because she has a very strong theatrical background and she has a very long history with pantomime. Mm. And I think that is reflected in her performance here as well. She's very much big noting her performance and to you know she's got mm -hmm. to fill the space which i think a lot of theatrical um actors and actresses have to do they they have to have that big presence there to fill the theater and i think that's what mel's trying to do a little bit here really too and then we get doctor and glitz wandering around the so-called um catacombs of ice world and uh, that little business there is one of those things I'm not sure I'm not sure if I like it or not. On one hand I think it's kinda cute, but on the other hand I think sometimes Sylvester goes a little too slapstick for my tastes. But Again, again it's 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 just straight from the stage as far as I'm concerned. It's yeah. it's stage performance. It's it's stuff to get a cheap laugh from the audience. Um, and I think that's something too that I find throughout this entire story. That one thing that always used to annoy me about Doctor Who is um, People couldn't see other people because they were slightly around a corner or, you know, they were slightly behind a bulkhead so therefore the Dalek couldn't see them. Whereas if you look at the angles, the way they yeah. filmed it, they should be able to see each other. And Dragonfire is filled with scenes where characters lose sight of other characters because they've just gone down mm -hmm. one corridor. 
Now, now and, here we are with the minus 193 degrees Celsius. I got to tell you, my son, my eight-year-old watched this with me, of course, for the first time for him too. Right now, he is really fascinated with the conversion of Fahrenheit to Celsius. And this, <laughs> this, this show hit him at just the right time. He loves this, and he's just thrilled by, by tracking what the temperature is and, and when Kane is getting too warm and has to cool down. <laughs> has he figured out what um, 192 Celsius in uh, Fahrenheit I, is yet? I strongly suspect he could do that. I couldn't. <laughs> He, 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 all he's... I'll say is, all, all I'll say is, it's really, really cold. Zero <laughs> degrees Celsius is freezing point, so anything below that is like, you know, sub freezing. Mm. He's, so, he's indignant um... that we're still using Fahrenheit here in America, but <laughs> hey, here, here's another set that I like. I think this is just lovely. I think this would have been wonderful if I think the, I mean, th throughout this entire production, I don't think they've got any money. I, I really don't think they've got any money. Or, or they've spent money on one or two things and haven't had enough for the rest. Here what we're in basically is room that's barely three metres by three metres. And it's supposed to be representing this amazing singing gardens area that you know a, a traveller would absolutely um, adore coming across when they visit Iceworld. But to me it looks like another room on Iceworld which just happens to have stalactites and stalactites in it. Um, I don't think it was realised particularly well. Mm. Where's your imagination? My imagination <laughs> works really well. It, it just needs a little bit of a push now and then. But um, the the actors are acting their heart out to try and make this yeah. small broom cupboard look amazing. And one thing, especially about these scenes here where they finally get down to the levels where there's snow on the ground, do you always, I always love how Syl is the only <laughs> performer who was trying to make it look like he's walking on on slippery snow. Right. Every scene, he's sort of walking on eggshells so he doesn't trip over, whereas the other characters are just wandering around. They don't care where they are, you know, because they're, yeah. they're just walking on fake snow. But um, Syl's the only one uh, acting his uh, little See, I don't care. That, that's too much slapstick for me, the way he exits there. <laughs> With the slipping into the corridor thing. Yeah, All right. That, that, there's another example of Syl should have seen... Glitz going down that corridor. Right, 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 right. You should have walked past it and seen him instantly, but no, because it's out of sight of the camera, it's out of sight of the character as well. That that always annoys me. It really does. This is a nice sequence here. Mm, mm. With um, Kane trying to win over Ace to his side. Well, and the, do I mean, the doctor can show her all those things. She doesn't know it, but she's got all of that in her future. Yeah, and whether it's bluster or not, but I always get the impression Ace has seen more than she really ever lets on anyway. I mean, even at this young age, she, she's got a good head on her shoulders in terms of, I suppose, what you call street smarts or something like that. Um, I think she's seen a few things for a young 16-year-old. Yeah, no, Mel's, Mel's done a bit of a scream to... Uh, <laughs> Lose the <laughs> transfiction with the cane. Yeah, it's a nice little scene. Like I said, um, Peel's the best thing in this entire story. Now, at this, this moment coming up here, actually, I had a bit of a problem with right here. Where, no, really? Well, because she does that move so fast where she knocks the coin off the counter, I couldn't tell if she had grabbed it or not. 
So, oh, and okay. I, and while she was going into the rest of the scene, I was still trying to figure out, did she pocket the coin? Was she stealing the coin? What's going on here? And I finally decided, well, it must have, she must, and you can kind of hear it pinging away somewhere on the set, mm. but uh, mm. I, I, it confused me a little bit. I don't know how you would redirect it, but I was confused the first time. Oh, look, here we go. Yes, um, yes, I'm, I'm sure the other guys have talked about it um, in their commentaries for the uh, second episode, but this cliffhanger is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. We're, we are now near the end of the episode. You've got to have a cliffhanger. It's classic Doctor Who. You've got to have one. Um, so for the first time in the, sh- hit, uh, in the history of the show, we're actually going to get him hanging off a cliff. Yes, indeed. Oh, here comes the dragon. And there goes the scream. Oh, that wonderful scream. Yeah, one of the last times we'll hear that from dear old Bonnie Langford. All right. Now, I have to tell you, as I was watching this with my eight-year-old earlier today, we got to this point. (laughs) And he looked looked at me and he said, why? (laughs) I have never been able to get an answer to four simple words. What was he doing? Or what was his intent? Was his intent to get down to the next level? If so, when he looks down in a minute and there's a sheer drop, then he must have known there was nothing down there. Also, when he grabs the top of the umbrella, he seems incredibly surprised <laughs> that he's slipping down or incredibly annoyed. But wasn't that the whole intent anyway? To slide down the umbrella to get to this mythical lower level? Hmm. Um, oh, it, it absolutely makes no sense. And even they've tried to explain it in um, well, it's later not, it's, years it's by saying, not, oh, you know, they, they didn't show the full set or something like that, so it was confusing. Yeah, the, but, the, the writer intended that he, that that was the only way for him to go and that it would be clear, yeah, clear that it was, but yeah. obviously that's not what came out on screen. What makes even less sense is, is at the beginning of the second episode, Glitz is there waiting for him when he reaches the bottom. Now, right. <laughs> <laughs> that even makes less sense. How did Glitz get down there? If the Doctor couldn't figure it, it just shows the Doctor to be a total idiot. But, um, yes, after that amazing cliffhanger, we are at the end of our commentary for the first episode. Please join the other four members of our team as um, they also go off into pairs and commentate on episodes two and three, so you can check them out on the website. Enjoy the rest, Thanks, Michelle, for joining me. Sure, enjoy the rest of Dragonfire. If you can. That was the Doctor Who Podcast which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.